Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joined today, she's a resiliency coach, body image advocate, author, speaker, and podcast host. It's Marcy Warhoff. How are you doing today, Marcy? I'm good. Happy to be here. I'm so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what did you like doing growing up? I'm from Montreal, Quebec, Canada, which was a really fun place to grow up, actually. Uh, I moved out. I moved out of my home uh, when I was about 19, moved to Toronto, Ontario, then spent about five years on the complete opposite side of the country in Vancouver and have been back in Toronto since about 2000. What I like to do, you know what? I've always danced. I think my mother put me in my first dance class when I was maybe three. And it was just, I loved the physical part of it, but it just, it was my joy. It's always been my joy. It was the thing I would do, still is, the thing I do when I'm happy, the thing I do when I'm not happy, but I want to be happy. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid and, and life was hard, I would go into my den with the orange shag carpet and put on <laughs> Donna Summer and Gloria Gaynor and just dance and, you know, how they say world off, music on kind of thing. Um, but then also I loved sports. I mean, when I was a little kid, like eight to 13, I went to an overnight camp where we played football and I I think people would be surprised. No, I want awards for football. So I've, I've always been, I guess, physical stuff has always been my thing. Was there a specific type of dance that caught your interest more or was it just the variety and the all different types of genres? I tried all different genres. I remember I did, I went to a jazz dance academy for a while and that was fun, but I always liked the more modern stuff, like anything that was where the music was stuff that was playing on the radio at the time. And and I remember being really little, like really little, and telling my mother that I wanted to be in ballet class. Because at that time, I, I thought, you know, I always heard it to, if you wanted to be a professional dancer, you had to take ballet. So I, I had her put me in ballet. And after just a few classes, the instructor asked my mom to remove me from class <laughs> because she said I used my hips and shoulders too much, which is true. It's still true. And and so she did. And then she another year, I was like, okay, I'll do it. I promise. And we tried again. And it just, because it, I do, I still use my hips and shoulders a lot. So it just wasn't my thing. So <laughs> I like more stuff that's just, you know, whatever the music makes you do, you just do it. Did you have a signature song that you enjoy dancing to? Ooh. Oh, not really. I will tell you though, when I was really little, I used to sing also, not anymore. But my, my, <laughs> trust me, but from the time again, I was really little for years. My signature singing song was I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor. Okay. That's a good, I took a hip hop class for one year. Uh, a friend of mine told me, oh, you'll be free. You don't have to pay for it. You just, they just need guys in the class. Mm. I had so much fun, but I felt so out of place. Like, I'm like. I think I know how to do these dance moves, but it's just not like my rhythm is just so off. And then there's the performance and my family bought a DVD of it. And I look back at it and I'm like, (laughs) okay, this is a memorable moment because I always remember. And then the songs that I are, that were in it, I'm like, if I hear on the radio, I'm like, I'm like doing the choreography (laughs) in the song. It's right there. It's still there. That's amazing. (laughs) I love that. You talked about football and especially nowadays where girls are getting involved in those contact sports. Was that something that was driving for you? Like, I want to be in that physicality. I want to be out there with the guys and things like that. You know what? At the time that we're talking late seventies, right. And, and it wasn't even a thing. I think, I mean, there were certainly no football teams for girls, but I had an older brother and we would, so he would play football and, and basketball with me and things like that. But I also remember just, it was one of those things where in our neighborhood, all the neighborhood mm. kids would get together. And I remember that we would play football and I just took to it. I just loved it. And then, like I said, I went to this camp and I was there from eight years old to 13. And it was an overnight camp. I was there for two months out of the summer. And at the end of the summer, they'd have Grey Cup, which is like Canadian football. And you were split. I feel bad for kids who hate it. Like I think now anyone who hated football was awful because for the whole, for a whole week, you were, the camp was split into two and you were on two teams and you just played football for the entire week. And I just loved it. And I wasn't thinking, I wasn't thinking at the time, oh, this is for boys or like, I, I love that my camp did that. Like there was the girls team. You couldn't play until you were eight. Like when you were younger, you were the cheerleaders. 
which was fine. But then, I mean, and it was like, it was great. So I, I'm, I'm glad that I wasn't even thinking that. Like it wasn't political. It was just, I liked throwing, catching, running. It was that simple. I love hearing that because that's how it should be. Just let the kids have fun and enjoy themselves. And exactly. don't put so much rules and restriction because that's how people lose the interest. And you want to keep them as fans and wanting to play as long as they can. Did you ever see a way to try to make it long-term, like after 13, continue to play? Or were you ready for that next chapter in your life? You know what? I think for me, it was still just, it was just something fun to do. Whereas with the dance, that maybe because it wasn't as available, like at camp, I knew I could do it. Whereas Mm. when I left camp, there weren't, like I said, there weren't any teams. So, but there was dance, there were dance classes and there were theater classes and my school didn't have a football team, but we had the play and the the fashion show and the variety show. So it was just easier to just focus on that. And, and so that's what I focused on. As you're growing up, did you have a person in your life that was motivating, inspirational for you? Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough that, um, I grew up with a really phenomenal mother and older brother, um, my parents got divorced when I was 10 and my father left, like gone. And I had an older sister, but we weren't close at the time. But my brother was five years older and he was, he, for, I guess he, I guess I looked at him the way a little girl is supposed to look at their father, right? Like he could do no wrong in my, he was just my protector when I needed protecting, but also just the kindest, most loving, fun person I could ever imagine. And he I remember finding like a few years ago, uh, something, a project he had done for school when he was maybe 15, younger, younger than 15. And it was like, describe your family. And he said, like, my, my younger sister, Marcy, she's really great. I love her a lot, but she's a really tough cookie. And I <laughs> love that. Like, you know, and he really, he, he made me feel like I could do anything. And same thing with my mom. My mom was somebody who would tell me that I was beautiful, but she would tell me more than that. She would say, what you have to say is interesting. You have a voice and you have the right to use it. So make sure you stand up for yourself and for others and don't let anyone intimidate you. And she used to also say, nobody is inferior nor superior to anybody else, regardless of race, sexuality, money, nothing. And I, I, I'm so grateful that I had them as my core growing up. As you gotten older, was the bond with your mother and your brother the same? Did it still feel that way as you gotten older to where you are? Well, see that, that, that was the, mm -hmm. see, here's the thing. I didn't have them for long. So the first huge, the biggest change in my life came when I was 17 and my brother was 21 and he got sick and he died and I didn't see it coming. And I, I lost so much of myself when he died. So um, I often say that the minute, the minute before I heard that Billy died was the last minute I ever felt truly safe in the world. Because at that age, I mean, I'm 17, right? He's 21. To me, he's this strong, gorgeous, amazing person. That doesn't happen, right? When you're seven, when you're a teenager, you feel like you're indestructible. You feel like you're invincible. And suddenly that, that wall was crashed for me. And I thought, oh my God, anything bad can happen. And, and I also felt like it should have been me because I felt that he was such a good person. And I felt that the world needed him more than it needed me. And I felt I didn't deserve to be here instead of him. And so I went from being this little kid that felt like she could take on the world and wasn't intimidated by anything or anyone to feeling like I didn't deserve to be here. And that, that set me on a path that that it really changed the course of my life. And then with my mom, thankfully I had her and she really was somebody that I leaned on, but I lost her about 10 years later when I was 28. Again, didn't see it coming because she tried to hide it from me and I was pregnant with my first. And so, you know, I delivered him a few months after she died, never expecting to be a mother without a mother. Um, and so that, that, that was challenging too. So I've been without them for a very, very long time. And I'm so grateful that I had them because everything that I've learned says that when you have a good foundation to start with, because I had them at the beginning, 
it it built a resiliency in me. It built something. It like even if I didn't, I didn't realize it, but it built something in me that made it possible for me to get through the rest of my life because life life threw a hell of a lot of challenges at me, mm-hmm. and the fact that I survived them, I think I, I owe a lot of that to having them in my life when I did. Now I'm gutted still that I don't have them because you know that the deeper you love, the the deeper the loss. But I'm so grateful that I had them for the time that I did. But I do feel cheated that I don't have them anymore. <laughs> but I'm grateful that I had them. <laughs> they play a big part in your life and they still make an impact because you remember those good times or the good things mm-hmm. that they said. And you take those words and you still utilize it. And a lot mm-hmm. of people listening, they can relate where they might lost a loved one, but they remember those good things that they taught themselves and how they utilize it today because they want to make an impact for someone else out there. Well, you know what I do to this day? I mean, I started this, I started this well, over 25 years ago, but I found my birthday really hard to celebrate. And I found like a lot of people do their birthdays, difficult days. And the day that the anniversary of the days that they, that they died difficult. But what I started to do was instead of focusing on mourning their death, I started celebrating their lives. And so on, on my birthday, on their birthdays, on the day that they pass, I do random acts of kindness around the neighborhood in their memory. And it like buy someone coffee, do, you know, bring flowers to a senior's home, whatever. But I used to do it for my brother and then my mother loved that. So when she died, I did it for her too. And it's just, it's a fun way to bring them into the day in such mm-hmm. a positive way. And I know that they love that because that's what it is. Why am I going to, to mourn? their death when, when their lives were so important. So I I prefer to celebrate their spirit. I love that. You mentioned that after your brother died, it started the path in a different direction. And especially Mm -hmm. at that time, 17, 18, you're getting to that next stage where you're like, okay, do I go to college workforce? Where do I go next for myself? What was that path starting to look like for you? Well, (laughs) I thought I knew it because while I was in high school, at the end of high school, I auditioned for a theater school and it was a difficult school to get into. And my brother had actually given me a monologue to, cause he was great at theater and he gave me a monologue to use for my audition. And believe it or not, the day that he died, I got the call from the school that I had gotten accepted. So it was a very bittersweet moment. I remember looking up and saying, thanks, Billy. But um, what happened was, I mean, it was great. It was a great school. It was a three-year program. I only stayed for a year and a half because again, at that time, my whole life collapsed. I mean, my whole life was just, and having those feelings of unworthiness and feeling like, okay, if I'm going to be here instead of him, I have to earn my spot. I can't just, I can't just be regular. I had to be spectacular, but I didn't feel at this point. I didn't feel like I was especially funny or interesting or smart or anything. So I thought, I mean, I'm 17, right? I mean, I'm thinking, well, maybe I could be pretty enough and pretty enough to my 17 year old brain meant skinny enough. And so my brother's death gave birth to an eating disorder. And so I started struggling with that. And that becomes your focus. I mean, my, instead of thinking of, you know, what I can do in the world, my every thought was, what I had eaten, what I was eating, what I was going to eat, how much did I weigh, how much was I moving, how many calories, it was awful. But I, it was subconsciously, it was a way for me to, to distract from what was going on. I mean, it's kind of like, it was easier for me to focus on my empty stomach than his empty bedroom. Mm-hmm. And, and that pain, that physical pain of being hungry was easier for me to understand than the pain in my heart of not having my brother anymore. So I stayed in school for about a year and a half, like I said, and then I left because there was also no point. Like I thought, well, I'm not pretty enough to make it. I'm not talented enough to make it. So it really changed me. Um, And I went into, I guess, a sort of depression for a while. And then see, it's, it's so crazy from this, (laughs) from here on, I will just say that uh, I, I ended up moving to Toronto, like I said, on my own and kind of thinking I had my life together a little bit. Um, I met my future husband um, thinking, okay, if I get married, then maybe my life will be normal. Oh, I should say, (laughs) funny how you forget little things like um, right after my brother died, uh, my mother had gotten remarried and um, my stepfather was arrested maybe a year after 
my brother passed away, we found out that he wasn't a caterer. Like he had said, he was wanted for 49 counts of bank robbery. So that, yeah. So that was, it's all in my book. (laughs) So that was, that was, again, it was, um, it was obviously a shock. Um, and it was, you know, my stepfather was great and it was, my father had left, my brother died. My stepfather was arrested. It was like, okay, so life is hard and, and people leave. Like that was, that was the message that I was getting from the universe. And then my mom was diagnosed with, with breast cancer, like for a few months later. And she was okay for a while after that. But it, again, it was like, what the hell is going on? What is going on? Um, and then, so I, when I met my future husband, my future husband and future ex-husband. Um, so, you know, it seemed like, okay, life, maybe life could be normal. Maybe life could be normal. Still battling an eating disorder. But life wasn't normal. And I will just say, I mean, I get into quite a bit of detail in my book, um, but we, the marriage was fine. We had normal struggles. Like we got pregnant. I had a a few miscarriages. Um, I got pregnant again while I was pregnant. Like I said, my mom got sick again and she died. And then we almost lost my son and then um, got pregnant again. And and when I got pregnant again, I got this weird reaction to an antibiotic and ended up in the hospital for months with kidney failure and respiratory failure. And I was given a 25% chance of surviving and I lost the baby. And um, they, when I did get out of it, I had to learn how to walk again, how to talk again, how to breathe again on my own um, and did that. And then ended up moving back East and then my marriage took a turn. It was a really strange thing where my, my husband at the time was like, I don't know, thought it was a good time right after I got out of the hospital. But a year later I had another baby. My sister, so I had two miracle babies. Still de- dealing with an eating disorder. Um, having lost, you know, my mother, my brother, having nearly died at 29 years old. And about you know, a few months after my second son was born, my my husband wanted to open up our marriage, decided it was a good time to, oh. yeah. And I didn't love the idea. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, he had mentioned it years earlier and I wasn't on board. I thought we, we I, listen, I, I'm honest about the fact I was not a prude. I had a very healthy attitude towards sex. Our sex life was good. Uh, but I liked one-on-one. I wasn't, and I also had body image issues, even though I was, I've always been fit, but in my head, you know, it was, I was always hard on myself and the idea, especially now, well, at that time I had a, I don't know, my son was maybe eight months old. I had also scars from major surgery. I wasn't really keen on showing other people, but that's what he wanted. And, and I, I always say I was, I make it very clear. I was not forced. I was not, there was nothing like that. But I think what it was, was I was emotionally done. I had a a therapist say to me, she called it traumatic overload. And she said, between the the physical traumas I'd been through and then the emotional traumas I'd been through, this was just too much. At the time, my sister and I were estranged. I don't, didn't have cousins I grew up with. I, I didn't have any family. So it was just him and two babies, two little kids. Um, and here he wanted to share me. And I will tell you, I don't, I don't love the idea of a possessive partner. However, <laughs> at that point, <laughs> after having come so close to losing me, there was something about it that I think made me feel like, well, it made me feel quite unloved. And I thought, okay, if I can't be loved, then I guess I could be desired. And maybe that's something maybe maybe that's how I'll find my worth and so actually the first thing he asked me to do was to sleep with one of his friends and (laughs) yeah and and he picked a friend that he knew I didn't like because I think it was because he felt that there was no threat to him right that didn't go so well but um but anyway it it wasn't obvious it wasn't a great experience for me and it did make, it did, it did, it did something to me in this sense of it really validated the fact that, oh, I'm really not worth that much. And so from that point, I felt that I served two purposes in life. One was I wanted to be the best mother I could be. I had had the best mother and I really wanted my kids to feel so loved and so supported 
and so safe because also when you when you come as close to death as I did, but also because I mean I was on a ventilator for 17 days, I like I said hospitalized for two months, and also losing the people that I lost, you realize you can like I felt I can go at any minute. Like who knows? And I wanted if that happened. I had this thing in my head. I want every memory that my kids have to be so good. Mm-hmm. So that was one, that was one kind of goal of mine. The other one for myself was to find validation through the sexualization of my body, because I thought, well, that's something, you know, it fed something in me. Because again, I was still dealing with the, the body image issues. I was still dealing with an eating disorder. So I didn't, I never felt pretty enough. But then if I had people telling me I was attractive, so I, I just, I soaked that in. Um, and so that kind of became a double life for me for a while because it started off where we would do things together and we started going to swinging clubs and things like that. And then I kind of went rogue. Like <laughs> I, I felt, I didn't like being controlled when I felt that he was controlling everything. You know, it was the when and the who and the what and the how of it all. Um, and then I'm coming back and having to be, you know, Marcy mom during the day and then this other person at night. And and I was still me. I couldn't separate it that well. And I, and I felt, listen, if I'm going to be, if he doesn't care who I sleep with, I get to, like, I'm going to make some decisions for myself kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't get to do, which wasn't great. Like it sounds, Oh, that's very empowering. No, it's not at all. So <laughs> it became where if somebody paid attention to me, then okay you know oftentimes i'd be like all right like okay i'll go with you kind of thing um and at one point because i was still struggling with with my body i had i was going to i had two 24-hour gyms that i belonged to and i would go to the gym in the middle of the night i'd go to the gym because like sleep was for lazy people because i was always kind of working out because i felt like listen if you're going to be showing your body to people you got to keep it (laughs) i had to keep it looking the way i wanted to look um, which is not healthy, but I met a trainer who said he could get me looking like a fitness model. So I said, okay, but you have to pay obviously for personal training. And here's my thing. I felt like I wasn't working cause I was home with two toddlers and I felt guilty taking money from the household to pay for a trainer. So I needed a job <laughs> where I could be with my kids all day and then make money at night. And so, which is not the typical <laughs> housewife solution, but I'm like, oh, I'll strip. So I, so I started stripping and I would literally be home with my kids all day, tuck them into bed, drive to the club, dance at midnight, go to my locker where I had my protein shake. I didn't have a sip of alcohol or a drug the entire time. Had my protein shake, um, get home three, four o'clock in the morning change, go to the gym, do my workout, come home, take a shower and be up with the kids. And I could go two days without sleeping. And it was to keep, it was to keep up just that thing. You know, it would be, it would be, you know, mom by day and Cassidy was my dancing name by night. And there was really no, no break. Um, And yeah, it was, it was something that could not, it could not last that long, but that was my life for, for a while. I mean, the dancing was, was only lasted, I guess, off and on, like for months, but the double life of me kind of being the town vixen and super mom, that was years that that went on until it couldn't go on anymore. <laughs> Did you ever think about bur- like the burnout where you mentioned not like you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself and especially your body. I mean, we, people go through the, like a lot of, if they stress emotions and things like that, the physical pain, it can wear out your body when you think it was, it's not going to. Was that ever a concern? Because I loved how you did when you were talking about your story. You did it for your kids. You were be, trying to be a mom. You were trying to protect them, take care of them, all that things. And you had that goal and you were willing to do anything to do that. And that's what a mom's all about is being that person in those mm-hmm. kids' life. And no, And sometimes we wish it was that easy way but sometimes our stories don't give out the hand that we want to. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's the thing I make very clear too, because I've had people who don't know my story and just know that I dance and said, Oh, you know, you had to do it to put food on the table. No, that wasn't my story. You know, I was married. He made a good living. There was food on the table. It was me 
just being in a really messed up situation, feeling completely unloved and unworthy and, and feeling like, oh, I, at that point, you know, when you talk about burnout, I didn't, I knew it wasn't healthy. I knew when I was going to the gym in the middle of the night and I wasn't sleeping. And at one point I took diet pills and I'm, it's five o'clock in the morning. I'm at the gym. I'm sure I'm having a heart attack because I'm having horrible pain. And I'm like, do I stop? But what if I stop and it's not a heart attack and I stop for no reason <laughs> and end up going to the hospital and the doctor was like, don't do that. Like, you're such an idiot. Um, and so I knew it wasn't healthy. So that's not being a great mom in that I'm putting my life at risk. However, however, I think at that point I was just thinking, I didn't care. I, 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 I didn't care what happened to me because I didn't feel like I was the greatest person at that point. So I felt like I just, I needed to keep doing what I was doing. I don't know, even know why I just felt the need, but, but yeah, I think I'll, I'm kind of jumping, but I will tell you that one thing is that years later, when I released my book, my kids knew, knew nothing of my past, you know, and it released a couple of years ago. So they were probably in their maybe 19 and 21 uh, or 20 and 23, something like that. Anyway, older, <laughs> but they knew nothing. They knew nothing about my past. And when I told them, and I, I showed them the cover of the book and it's called The Good Stripper, a soccer mom's memoir of lies, laughs and lap dances. And I didn't know how they were gonna react. And I will tell you that one of my kids was like, my younger one was like, when did this happen? I don't, when, I don't even, like he was so unbothered because he said like, okay, so he was unbothered. And then my older son said, he said, you keep saying that you made mistakes. He goes, but you also keep saying that you want us to have the best lives and we've had the best lives. So maybe you didn't make mistakes. So the way that they saw it was to them, I was there. Like they don't remember a second. Like if anything, I was the overprotective mom. I was not the cool mom. I was like the one <laughs> wear your helmet. You can't go swimming without a parent there. Like I am, I was making scavenger hunts for them and their friends, Easter egg hunts, like all that stuff. So they don't remember me not being, and I love that. Like I'm so grateful for that so and I did end up burning out I mean I, I I did but I think at the time I just I don't I don't feel like I had much of a choice you get on this treadmill and it just seems impossible to get off does that still the emotions of them being so supportive of you when you did release that book and they were open that you were there for us you we don't remember you not being there. Does that still hit you today when you talk about that? Well, it's funny too, because I think, I mean, I'm so, I'm so grateful for them because I remember at one point too, when I started doing interviews about it and started talking about it, my younger son isn't so much on social media, but my older son is. And so I would send him a text saying, okay, I'm going to be on this show talking about this. Is that okay? And he'd, he'd be like, just do you, like, we'll <laughs> let you know. And at one point he's like, do me a favor. He's like, take a screenshot of me saying, you're good. We're in your corner. It's okay. And he said, <laughs> and then instead of letting me know that you're going to do something, just read the text. So I love that. Yeah. I love, look, even my ex-husband and I, we raised our kids to be free thinkers, to, to not feel pressured to be anything that they aren't and to, to be true to themselves. So I'm just walking the walk, I guess. And, and so I love that, that they, that they're, I, I always say, I don't, I don't know. I don't expect them to understand way that I live all the time and the choices I make, but I do think they respect it. And that's, that's all I can ask. Sometimes if you talk about the certain teens being a stripper, open marriage, things like it always has a negative connotation to it. Talk about a positive thing that you learned about yourself going through those experiences. Did it teach you about yourself that you're like, I have this in me, I can do this, showed me a different side that I can utilize even when I'm not doing that anymore. Well, I'll tell you this. It was a different situation than if I, if, hmm. so when I look back at the things that I used to feel shame about, it's not dancing. I, and I think that then when people look down at, at, at dancers, at strippers, I think that that's ridiculous. So I yep. think there's no shame in, in any kind of sex work. I am a firm sex workers work and I, and I have, a lot of respect for people who, who do that kind of work and who it should not be demonized and stigmatized at all. Um, and there is a part of me that's like, Oh, like I, 
because I, I still I look like I said I love to dance I mean the the the, the thing that I talk about sometimes that makes me laugh is that you know I I remember starting at the club and and <laughs> and I remember this woman coming over to me and she she was working there too and she said how long like when after you started did you were you able to get up on stage and I'm like what do you mean and she's like like how she goes I've been here about three months I can't get up. I'm like I didn't even know that was a thing. I'm like, damn, that, that, that was my favorite part. I'm like, what do you mean? How do you, I loved being on stage. I didn't love having to sell myself after. I didn't like having to sit down with men and, and be like, buy me. I didn't like that. But I loved dancing on stage. There was something very empowering about that. But as far as that whole double life of kind of confusing being sexual, being sexualized, I, I can't say that I that there was something good in that because I was not in the right I was not in my right mind. I was not. It was not a healthy situation. But looking back, I see the survivor in me. I see that I held on to these secrets for decades and they really controlled me. And it was only when I decided to release my to write my book and found out it was going to be published and and had to come to terms with with everything. I I knew I couldn't release it until I forgave myself for a lot of things. Because if I was still feeling shame, then what other people thought was really going to impact me, and I couldn't afford to do that because I didn't know how people were going to react. So I I knew I had to be okay with me. And what I I say all the time too is that I used to really criticize myself for how I survived. And now I'm just proud of the fact that I survived. And I think, I think and one of the things that we do to ourselves that's really detrimental is that we judge ourselves, we judge ourselves then on how we would act now. And that's not fair. So it's very easy for me to look back and go, oh my God, look at the things I did. I would never do that now. No, of course I wouldn't because I'm smarter and I'm wiser and I've learned more and I've got support and of course, but I didn't have that then. So I did the best I could then. So I'm so proud of myself that I, that I made it through however I had to. Look, sometimes survival, well, I was gonna say sometimes it's pretty. I don't think it's ever super pretty. I think survival, yeah. it's messy and it's dirty and you're crawling on your hands and knees and you're, you know, there's dirt underneath your fingernails and it's hard, but, but I can't, so what? It's just, it's survival. And so I'm so grateful now to that version of me. I used to, I used to, think about her, let's say, Cassidy and that part of me and just be so ashamed. And now I'm just so proud that, yeah, it wasn't ideal and it was dangerous. And it, it, it you know, it's certainly not the way I envisioned my life being when I was a little kid, but it was what life gave me. I did the best I could with what I had. And here I am. I, I, I got through it and I let go of all that shame. And, oh my God, is that empowering? Cool. Oh, that's empowering. <laughs> so I'm so I'm so much more okay with myself now at 52 years old than I've ever been ever in my life. And and that's I'm grateful for that. I love everything you're saying cuz people listening that if they're going through a surviving or a survival, they're sur- trying to battle through it. They know that listening to your story, they can get through it. Because everyone has their own different story. And no matter what, we can all take little bits on how we each did it and utilize it in our lives. And it just shows that on the outside, when we're looking at people, we might think, oh, they got it all. They're perfect. But we don't know what's really going in physically, emotionally, inside the household where Mm -hmm. we think it's a comfort space, but it's not all the time. No, and I think also one thing I make very clear was when people will say to me, especially um, if they read my book or they hear part of my stories, they'll say, oh, it's amazing that you can just, you're so strong, you got through everything. And it's like, hold on a second. (laughs) Because I think what's really important for people to know too, if you are going through a really hard time now and you see people who are telling it like from trauma to triumph and all, there's a million stories like that. and, And it makes it seem like, oh, this person went through something so hard, but look at them, they just bounced back. And let me tell you, I didn't just bounce back. Like I, I got up and then I fell down and then I got up and then I fell down. And like, and sometimes I, I got up right away. Sometimes I got up a lot slower, but, but that's normal. So if somebody is going through a really hard time and they feel like, oh, they should be further ahead. No, you know, and you could take a few steps and then take a few steps back 
that is normal. But mm. all I can say is, you know, I thought I was, I started to feel like you're born, you're given a certain amount of strength. And I thought I had gone through it. I thought I'd gone through it all and I was done. And it was, it was really at certain points when I thought, like, sure, I'm, I'm done. Like, this is it for me. I can't go any further. That there was a spark. There was something there that kept me going. So even if you can't see it or can't feel it, it's there. It's there. So just hold on. So you talk in my intro, I mentioned you're a podcast host and speaker. How did you get involved with speaking and especially the podcast host as you are sharing other people's stories at the same time, especially yours? Yeah. Well, speaking, you know what? It's funny because I was so afraid. Well, I shouldn't say I was afraid. I didn't know how people were going to react when I released my book. And I was pleasantly surprised to see that, you know, there were some people who weren't thrilled with the stuff I talked about, but, but most people were really amazing. I had people reaching out to me, people who I'd known when I was a little kid, people who, um, who I didn't know people from all over the world. I still get messages daily from people who are sharing their stories with me because they're amazed that I could be so open. And now I can't not be, I'm so crazy unfiltered, but uh, so so that just became where people were just asking me to speak mm-hmm. to groups about letting go of shame and speaking truth and things like that. So the podcast, what happened with that was, so it's called how to ruin your own reputation. And that's because again, before my book came out, I had to make the decision. Was I ready to risk ruining my reputation with my book coming out personally, professionally in all ways. And I decided, yeah, again, I was in my 50s. I'm in my 50s. And I thought, if I can't be me now, what the hell am I waiting for? Like, am I still going to worry about what people think? No. You know, I, I, the hard part was getting through the things that I went through. If someone's going to judge me on how I went through it, that's on them. That's not going to, that's not going to hurt me. And what I found was I, I was meeting some really interesting people through that. And I decided that. I think there's a lot of power in hearing people's stories that are different than your own. Because one thing I would get a lot of is people saying, I had no idea. I had no idea. Or, or I, I, you know, I see you online. I would never guess that you had been through that. Or, and I'm like, okay, well, you know what? A lot of people have been through a lot of stuff and we just don't know about it. Also we judge, we tend to judge things. A lot of, a lot of people are living lives that, that come with some shame or some guilt or stuff like that. And I thought, Oh, you know, we got to let that go. So what I do with my, with my podcast is I highlight people who have either unusual jobs or who are living lives that some people just don't understand and they're living it unapologetically. It could be alternative lifestyles. It could be non-traditional marriages. It could be a whole bunch of different things. And it's been so amazing because what I do is have a very you know unfiltered conversation where we get really honest. And what's funny too is because, <laughs> is because I have had kind of this, bizarre amount of experiences and in, in different ways. I always, even if I don't think I'm going to have anything in common with the people I interview going into it, I always, I always seem to connect. And that's what I found happens with people who are listening too. there are people who will come into certain topics, whether it's, I did one on sexual dominance and slaves or sex work, or uh, I, I, one of my favorite guests was a, a transgender male boxing coach. And there are people who will come into it, think either they, they are thinking, okay, I'm not going to connect with this at all, or they're coming in with a lot of judgment. And then they leave going, oh, you know what? Like, I kind of understand. Like, there's not everything, but they see, the, and I love that. I love that. So that's, that's where that focus came. And I'm having a, a blast with that and just meeting the, the best people. That is the same exact thing I always thought when I started this show. I'm like, Who's going to want to talk to me? I have nothing in common with them. But even for us, we didn't know much about each other, but we have that. We took dancing classes. We know Uh from that experience. There's other things stories wise also, but it just shows that people can relate with each other. They Mm -hmm. may be completely different backgrounds, experiences, industries, but we're all similar in what we might be going through or something we like to do. And we got to take that judgment out and not judge people off of just the cover of a book. We have to really learn about that person because they could be such a great person 
But if you touch them, you're going to have those blinders on the whole entire time. And it's just going to be deflect, deflect. deflect. And and what is she? And then you don't grow and then you don't learn. I mean, the other thing I say all the time is that the details of our stories are unique to us, but there are so many times there are common themes running through them. So even with my story, okay, so you, you probably didn't have a stepfather that was a bank robber. And maybe, you know, when you went through a lot of losses, you didn't turn to stripping, but people have been through loss. Yes. People have been through body image issues. People have been through difficult relationships. I mean, these are things that that we've all been through. So even if you can't relate to every part of my story, you relate to the struggle, you relate to the pain, you re- you relate to the love. You know, there's there's so many things that you will relate to. So I I think that if we do each other such a disservice and ourselves such a disservice by not taking the time to listen to someone else's story, especially when there's you think they're so different because you're not going to learn very much. When you surround yourself with people who think exactly like you do. Yep. As a coach, what is your mission as being a coach? What is your goal and what do you hope to inspire and help with others? Well, for me, it's all about, it's all about releasing the shame. It's all about that. I think that fear is what guides so many people. And what I've learned is that it's the fear around the secrets that we keep that, that does the most damage. It's not the secrets. Once the secrets come out, once we show people who we really are, that's not that hard. And it's such, oh my God, it's so, you can breathe. It's so liberating. But it's that fear that keeps us prisoner. And I think that it's, it's, oh my God, trusting that when you show the world who you really are, it's not going to collapse. It's not going to end. If anything, that's when it starts opening up. And that's what I want to help people do. Do you feel that way where you feel a sense of freedom where if you didn't write that book and you were still holding everything in, do you feel that it would be even tougher for you? Because I, having that well, book, well, now the whole world can hear all about it. <laughs> it's, I can't even, I can't even imagine who I would be if I hadn't done that. I mean, listen, I'll be very honest. It's still odd when, when somebody will message me and say, Hey, I bought your book. And I'm like, my first thought is, oh, great, they're going to read it. And then my second thought is, oh, my God, they're going to read it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, they're going to know a lot about me. It's 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 very vulnerable. It's a very vulnerable feeling. Because like I said, I do get very, very honest and raw and open. I, if I was going to write my book, I was going to I was going to write it. Yeah. Uh, and I also I didn't I didn't hide the parts that I felt made me look not so great. Because if I didn't add those, then that meant, meant that I still felt shame around it. And I didn't I wasn't what's the point then? Um, and then writing it, well, there's two parts. There's writing it, which was great for me because I think I say to everybody, write your story, even if you have no plans on showing it to anybody, because there were so many things that I still judge myself on. And then when I put it down on paper, I was able to look at it almost objectively and go, wait a second. No, now I understand why I thought that way at that time. And now I understand why I reacted that way. It really gave me clarity. And that, that released a lot from me. But then putting it out there. And again, it's like, oh, what are people going to think? And then, and, and having almost this armor of like, I don't care what people think, I'm going to be fine. And then when people are, are so loving and so accepting, mm-hmm. it's, it really does kind of go, oh, make you exhale and go, what was I, what was I waiting for? Because once, I, I think the expression is, you can't, nobody can shame you if you don't feel shame. So, yeah. Now, some I, I lived for literally two decades with this fear of somebody coming to me with my past in front of my kids, in front of somebody I was dating, in front of whatever, and saying, oh, I know you used to do whatever. Now, I'm like, yeah, I wrote about it. Like, <laughs> everybody knows. Then <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of power in that. But but it's it's people knowing, but it's really owning it and me really not being ashamed of it. And so that has absolutely helped me with everything else in my life because what's the way if I try stuff or if I do something, if I post something, if I, whatever, what's the worst that ha- like, okay. So something doesn't go the way I want it to. Okay. <laughs> I'll survive. You know, like, yeah. like somebody doesn't like me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> somebody doesn't approve of something. All right. Like it's not, it's not the end of the world, but until you do that, until you take that step and, and kind of just be open with who you are, you don't know. So yeah, I think I think, is my life perfect. No, I have so much more to learn. However, 
I'm not where I want to be, but oh my God, am I further than where I was? And that's, that's what I hold on to. Is there going to be another book coming out? Do you plan on writing another book? I don't know. I might, if I write another book, I think I thought about it. And then I think it might be around my podcast, the people that I'm meeting and and what I'm experiencing with that. I think that might be something I would consider at some point. We talked about Marcy's journey, but I want to talk about you personally. What is something fun you have for yourself in the next few years? Do you have a personal goal? What's something you like to do nowadays? So here's the thing with me, Alex. I don't, <laughs> my kids joke, my kids joke around when somebody says to me, what's your five-year plan? They're like, she doesn't have a five-minute plan. Because I don't, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I, I don't. It's, and honestly, to be very honest, I think part of that comes from, comes from the fact that I, I did lose people so young that I, you know, had such a near-death experience. And I don't, I don't plan very far ahead. It's strange. I don't, I don't do that. I can't, I'm very, I'm, maybe that's where my commitment issues come in. I don't know. But, (laughs) (laughs) but I just, um, so I don't, I don't think like that. I just really, I'm a moment by moment kind of person. I mean, I, I just started my podcast a few months ago. Had you told me a year ago I'd have one, I would have said, no, that's too complicated. I'm not going to do that. If you told me, you know, two and a half years ago, I was going to write a book. I mean, I would have said, no, that's not going to happen. That's... So I find that I'm surprised. I surprise myself every six months. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I've gone from, from people saying she did what to people going, she did. Oh, of course she did. You know, like I like that. I, <laughs> that I'm constantly sort of surprising people by just doing the unexpected. And I, and I love that. I know that um, I'm going to keep doing the things that, make me curious and, and, and kind of make me excited. I mean, it's been a hard for all of us. It's been such a hard few years. And, and like I said, with the podcast, I mean, I'm, I'm loving it just because it's fun. Like I, I, I really, I'm somebody who is, I always say like I'm an introverted extrovert or an extroverted introvert. Like I'm not a big party person, but I am the person who will sit at a coffee shop and talk to whoever's there for whatever. Like I like, interacting with people. And so I'm, I'm really loving that, but I, I'm more curious instead of planning. I'm somebody who's like, Ooh, I wonder what's going to happen. Like, I'm just as curious as everybody else. <laughs> I don't know, but, uh, but I'm just going to go with whatever I I've learned that I can't, my life has taught me that I can't plan. So I'm kind of like, Oh, we're, we're here now. Oh, okay. Oh, now we're here. Okay. Now, Oh wait, now we're going over here. <laughs> and I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of what's, of what's to be. And that's, that's a good place to, that's a good place to be. You honestly answered that perfectly because everyone kind of freaks out when I ask. They're like, well, I don't have a plan. It's like, that's fine. Like you don't have to have it. Sometimes we learn that, like you said, that you can't plan long terms because you're living in the minute day by Mm -hmm. day and you're just enjoying life. And that is a plan. That is, that's a plan that maybe people don't think is a plan because it's not on paper, like I'm doing this, this date, things like that. And I just love that attitude that you have because every day you don't want to regret not doing something, but if you're given the opportunity, you're going to go do it because that's what you want. Yeah. Well, I think people find safety in different ways. I think there are people who, I mean, I know people who have a 10 year plan and they are, they are doing it, you <laughs> yeah. know, and they, and that, but that feels very safe. And I get that. Whereas for me, Oh, that feels That terrifies me. Like the thought of like, anyone who who's like oh this contract for 10 years for what like that's oh my <laughs> yeah. God, i can't even have, what no i can't even, i don't that is terrifying to me but to someone else it's like oh wait here's a job guaranteed 10 years that's awesome and you know again for me it's like oh, it's could we talk in 10 days like i'm gonna do 10 days. <laughs> so so that's so my sort of comfort zone is to not have a comfort zone is to kind of be like it's you know how they say the evils you know versus the evils you don't know. So there are people yeah. who feel like I'd rather stay here because it's not great, but what's out there could be worse. And my thing is like, yeah, but it could be amazing. I mean, it could be terrible, but if it is, I'll get through it. Yeah. You know, I've gotten through some pretty bad stuff, so I'll get through it, but it could be amazing. So I'm more optimistic that way. So again, whatever, whatever makes somebody, whatever makes life easier for someone, if it, if it's having your life plan on paper, do it. But if you don't, that's okay too, because really what, if there's ever anything we've learned in the last two years, two and a half, three years, whatever it's been now, it's, <laughs> we get some unexpected curveballs <laughs> thrown at us. <laughs> and 
no matter what we plan. So it's good to be a little flexible. If anyone had this on their bingo sheet, they should win. Exactly. Like, let's be honest. I mean, exactly. I would say, like, if the pandemic didn't happen, this show would not be here because I needed, I needed yeah. a project and I needed something fun. And I will say, it has been the best opportunity that I have because I get to meet wonderful people like you on the show every mm. single day. Right back at you. Yeah. The final question I'll ask you, for someone that's listened to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals, and rise to the challenge? I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound so flippant, but I think, okay, I don't know if this is going to answer it, but one thing I find is that anyone who has been through a lot of tough stuff or trauma, we're always told you're so strong. You're so strong. And I have people say to me all the time, oh, you're so strong. I couldn't survive half of what you went through. And I say, well, that's not true. I don't think that I'm any stronger than anyone else. I just had to prove it. And mm-hmm. so let's hope that somebody who's saying that, let's hope they never have to prove it. And so, but my point with that is that even if we think we can't get through stuff, we can, we are stronger than we think. It's just to not put a timeline on it. It's not think that we have to get through it a certain way but it's to believe that we can't not only can we get through it's we deserve to get through because a lot of times also we think if we're if our lives don't look like someone else's if it's not as pretty it's not as perfect then we're not doing it right however you get through it is the right way to get through it and there is no timeline it doesn't have to look like anyone else your story does not have to look like anyone anyone else's to be valid also, I think it's very important that, you know, I see these, I hate cliches, I hate cliches. And there's one that I see all the time, which is, you know, I didn't wake up to be mediocre. And my thing is, what if you did? What if I, what if today I'm going to be mediocre? That's fine. Like, I think yeah. we live in a world that says you have to be spectacular all the time. And let me tell you, you don't. And I don't think that we have to earn one thing. On we don't have to earn our place. Just the fact that we were born, we are worthy of being here. And so you don't have to do anything amazing or, or whatever to be worth, to, to, to deserve happiness and to deserve to be, to be successful, whatever that means to you and healthy and happy, but just do it your way. And please don't, I mean, it's such a cliche, but I honestly, I truly don't care what people think. I mean, anyone who knows me knows I really don't care. (laughs) I used to, oh my God, before I went into therapy for my eating disorder and I totally, I don't anymore because nobody's waking up saying, Ooh, what's Marcy going to think today? You know, no one's thinking, what am I, I'm going to get dressed. What would Marcy think of? I'm going to post this. What would, so why would I give that that power to anybody else? So it's just, just live your life in a way that makes you happy. And don't worry about making anyone else uncomfortable. Your life doesn't have to make anyone else comfortable. You just have to do what's right for you. As long as you're not hurting anybody else, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Marcy, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure chatting with you, Alex. I had a good time. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe to all major audio platforms. We'll have to use it to accomplish your goals.